Hey, welcome to Lion and Lamb. Uh, I'm, uh, my name's Kent Vincent, and uh, I teach uh, basically once a month here. So I understand how it can be difficult to remember what I taught about last time. Sometimes it's hard for me to remember what Mike taught about last week. But that's just, you know, because of age and that sort of thing. But, uh, uh, but what we're talking about here is something that is pretty basic. This isn't so much theological as it is practical. There's theology involved, of course, some very basic biblical principles, but uh, this is something where we need to get the big picture, and the big picture is not difficult. It's really not. And the reason it's important is because there are big consequences to what we're talking about. All right? So let me first pray, and, uh, and then we'll get into it a little bit more. Father in heaven, we give all praise and glory to you. And Father, it is our desire that that genuine faith be passed on to our children and our children's children. Father, you are the object of our worship, and it is our mission in life to love, cherish, and worship you. And that's what we want. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do a, a review of where we've been. I started a series in January called Head to Heart about getting genuine faith and conviction passed on. And uh, I'm going to quickly review these, uh, but Larry and the tech guys, how do you like that one? Larry and the tech, we've got, we've got guys for selling burgers and guys for moving vans and all kinds of things, and this may be a new adventure, a new adventure for Larry, but he, he's made it very simple. If you want to go back and revisit anybody's message from the past, you can do that. Go to the website, click on sermons, and look for a particular series, a particular speaker, and you can revisit these if it's important to you. But in, we started in January with asking a rhetorical question. You see, in Deuteronomy 6 and throughout the Bible, it said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Okay? The question was, is that commandment worth passing on? This is a no-brainer. Okay? So, we asked that question, and then we took a look at the culture that had developed over time. It, there's been an evolution. So we went from not a universal, but a basic understanding of a God-centric universe up until about the mid-1800s when we had this thing called modernism come in, which said that science and superstition, uh, science overtakes what they call religion and superstition. That was a false claim, of course, because science is the friend of Christianity, if you'll study it. And that lasted for about 100 years until when I was a young person in the 70s, we had this brand new philosophy called, come in called postmodernism, which basically said that, no, it's not faith in God, it's not faith in science, it's faith in the person, in other words, the person determines truth and even reality. At most, it's the culture. So there is no absolute truth. And the thing about that philosophy is that we were talking about kids in church who believe that. That, in other words, for the time being, 
They were fine with saying, yes, Jesus is my Savior, but that was their truth because it worked for them at the time. It wasn't a universal truth. And so they could not judge anybody else who had a contrary view, who said that their truth was true. So it's truth for me. You've got your truth. I'm okay. You're okay. That was the basic philosophy of many young people for the last two decades. And now those young people who started that when I was growing up and, and uh, who, who started to have kids uh, in, the, in the early aughts, they've got kids now who are teens. And so what we did at that time is we set as our goal for this series first to see how important passing on faith is. And secondly, we want to determine where are we in that process or where are we in that chain, if you will. And finally, we want to fortify our own faith and, this is important, and, and genuine relationships in order to be not just faithful, but effective in passing on faith, real convictions to our children and our grandchildren. In February, we, we address the tendency, not the law, the rule, but the tendency of faith to dissipate over the generations. We saw several Old Testament examples of that happening, and then New Testament principles that said, yeah, that's what tends to happen. Um, and we use the concept of chairs, okay, if you remember this. And so one generation may be in the first chair. They have rock-solid convictions, and they live it out. Their walk matches their talk. And they may have children who are saved, accepted Christ as their Savior, they're genuinely saved, but they're not quite as fervent as their parents. In other words, they might have thought that their parents were a little over the top. So they pull back a little bit. They're compromising in some of their faith. They will have children. And those children of second-chair parents might take a look at Christianity. They might have gone to church all their lives, and they might check the box on religious preference for Christian, but they really want nothing to do with biblical Christianity because of the hypocrisy they saw in their second-chair parents. Okay? This is all just review. And so uh, what we saw was that the dissipation that we, we tend to see, uh, we ignore at our peril. Our goal, of course, is not focused on the solid Christian. It's not focused on the unsaved person. It's on that second chair. And so our hope is that this is all an individual decision here. If you think you might be a second chair, at least in some respects, we want to get you into the first chair. This is not it's nothing you're, you're stuck in. It's not like this is in stone. It depends on your response and how you live your life. So in March, we looked at the basic question of what constitutes genuine conviction for imperfect yet sold-out occupiers of the first chair. And we hope to pass on this conviction to our young. And to do that, we must have a foundation upon which we build our own faith. Okay? We must know and pass on the evidences that demonstrate that a biblical worldview matches reality better than anything else and is consistent with not only science, but it's the only logical framework in which we can live. So we defined conviction at that time as being so convinced that Christ and his word are both objectively true 
and relationally meaningful that you act on your belief regardless of the consequences, come what may. In April, we took a look at what it means to be relationally meaningful. Relationship and community are biblical concepts exemplified in the early church. And so we started with the biblical truth that Jesus did not just teach truth. Jesus is truth. Okay? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but through me. As uh, Josh McDowell puts it, truth is intrinsically, inescapably relational because it resides in and springs from a person who loves us and desires a relationship with us person to person. So to be sure of that truth, we have to know and understand and be able to pass on that he is God incarnate. To do that, we examine the evidences for the through his prophecies that he fulfilled, through his virgin birth, and the many miracles that he performed. And the evidence is overwhelming. Last month, we continued that examination of relationship in God's love for us through the incarnation. God, Jesus being fully God, came down to earth and was fully man at the same time. Why did we do that? Because our nature acquired from our common ancestors in the garden made us sinners. We turned our back on God. It was the pots critiquing the potter. However, even though we turned our back on God, God loves us so much and desires a relationship with us so much that he sent and gave his son to pay the price for our sin. Now that's unconditional acceptance. Justice says that you and I deserve the wrath of God. We're all sinners. But God, being rich in mercy, loved us with his great love. And Jesus is the example of unconditional acceptance because he accepted us just as we were and as imperfect as we are right now. And so to follow that example, we are to unconditionally accept our own children and grandchildren, as imperfect as they may be. I also mentioned last month that young children tend to perceive and relate to their heavenly father as they perceive and relate to their own parents, particularly their father. So if a father is strictly authoritarian, the young people will tend to see their heavenly father as a, uh, a, an enforcer of rules and maybe a punisher. If the father is passive, detached, distant, maybe consumed with his career, the child may see his heavenly father as likewise uncaring and distant. The point here is that examples are important to faith because what you do in relations horizontally affects their relationship vertically. Now, we all know that some people have come to faith just by hearing the word from a stranger, perhaps a street evangelist. Maybe it was a a pastor or just reading the Bible or a gospel tract. That's possible. But most of us were greatly influenced by parents or friends, maybe a trusted mentor, maybe a combination of, of people. 
And most of us likely had somebody who demonstrated real interest in us or love which drew us to Christ. So our, if our goal is to disciple rock-solid conviction into the next generation, we must develop strong relational connections with those younger folks. This won't guarantee that they will develop that, condi- that, that conviction, but certainly without that relationship, it will be much more difficult to encourage that conviction, and much more likely the young will find their connections elsewhere. So today... We want to discuss how this works out in two primary spheres of life for Christ followers, the church and the family. God's plan was for the relational meaning of the incarnation to translate to human relationships. How so? Well, just as an infinite God entered a finite and earthly body, Jesus Christ, so God dwells, so Jesus dwells in an earthly body, which is the church. We call it the body of Christ. Uh, some, some passages call it the bride of Christ. And you remember the teaching about marriages that man and husband, husband and wife, husband and wife are one. Okay? So we understand how that works. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, it says that for just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In Romans 12, we are told that because we are one body in Christ, we are individually members one of another. Now, for example, if a member of the body, say a young person, feels disconnected, alone, adrift, looking for a relationship somewhere, God's plan is for the other members of the body to give that person the connection she desires and remove her loneliness. In short, We are to care for one another. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. That's back to 1 Corinthians 12. So, in a very real sense, a young person or anyone who feels loved and cared for by the members of the body becomes much more fertile ground for receiving the love of God. And God has prepared the body and given each of us gifts differing according to his plan uh, that we are able to use together to reach out to become a conduit of God's love and care, to express God's love and acceptance to the disconnected. You know, one of the most oft-quoted phrases in the Bible, and this is usually by itself, is, God is love, right? Uh, that, that, that is in there. It's in the Bible, and it's actually in 1 John 4, and it's in the context of relational connection within the body of Christ. It says there, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. 
In this the love of God was made manifest or clear among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then that passage ends with, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And you don't want to be in the opposite camp. Loving and caring for one another is an essential function of the church. In Romans 15, Paul tells us that we are to welcome, some versions say receive or accept one another as Christ has welcomed, received, accepted you for the glory of God. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 1, we're commanded that, reminded that he is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So when we as members of the body make ourselves available, love, and accept the younger where they are, where we once were, we are not only preparing the hearts, their hearts to relate to God, but we're acting as living agents of the incarnation. But this goes much deeper. Think about this. Uh, when members of the body love and care for one another, there's this mysterious way in which we're actually ministering to Christ himself. Matthew 25 pictures Jesus at the final judgment, separating the sheep from the goats, which shepherds have to do, which he will do. Then it says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger or welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. This is kind of like never knowing when you might be entertaining angels, except more obvious. So we ought to take it seriously. If we do not connect with our young people, we are refusing and neglecting to serve Jesus. And he makes this clear when he addresses the goats. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So we can see here the role of the body of Christ, the church in connecting the disconnected. And this is especially true for the disconnected from non-Christian families. And so you might say, yeah, can't I agree completely? The church is the place where we develop relationships with the young as a team. It is good to know that others are helping with that difficult process of getting my kids to genuine faith, right? Well, yes, the, the church is vital to the development of relationship as the body is meant to function as one. However, the church is neither the only nor the first relationship ordained by God. 
I think you know where I'm going. And this will get a little bit more personal and convicting. What we're saying here is that we as parents and grandparents, a.k.a. the family, are on the front lines of the battle. The church can make up for some deficiencies in the family, but the church cannot replace the family. Now, because the family is the beginning environment for us all, it is and it should be the primary tool for connecting children with their creator. Yeah, families can utilize the church and the Christian school or other things like that to assist, but using the support of others is a far cry from the abdication of responsibility. So if your young person does not turn out well, you cannot blame the Sunday school teacher or this Christian school teacher, or any other teacher. Now, we sometimes hear of families who, parents who send their kids to church, okay, so that they can get good examples and be in a good environment and that sort of thing, but they don't go as parents. Uh, we have, over the years, had this big bus from a Baptist church way out on the Lecompton exit on I-70 go through our neighborhood, and they're not picking up parents. They're picking up kids whose parents are sending them to the church, okay? So this happens all the time. Uh, We have to understand, though, that the primary responsibility was placed squarely on parents and particularly fathers. The command to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is never directed at the church or the school, only to fathers who are accountable to God to see that that happens. I think you all know that every newborn struggles for an immediate and intimate bond, sometimes called rooting or other things, that may make the difference between connection and detachment. Uh, That's our nature. Without that bonding as an infant, the child may develop what's called an attachment disorder. In the situations that I've seen where a child has been adopted, and may suffer from some attachment disorders, by far most have been when a child did not receive love, nurture, and attention early on. Uh, Now, they were perhaps taken into an orphanage, and that orphanage probably saved their lives. But because of the overwhelming need or the lack of resources, some of them were left to lay in a crib without much personal and physical attention and bonding. The problem we have in the U.S. is more subtle. It can range from very good parents, but who are wrapped up in their careers and interests, to fatherlessness, to the neglectful, or even to parents who actually abuse. Some well-intentioned parents desire a relationship with their young, but they don't know how to stay connected with their kids. Nature abhors a vacuum, okay? So if parents are not connecting, relating, and developing godly values in their kids, the kids will find their connection elsewhere. Often before our young people develop maturity, discernment, and security in Christ, parents will think they're doing their kids a great favor, perhaps a a long-anticipated gift, or at least stop the complaining by providing a smartphone and thereby connecting them to the Internet and the world. Let me give you an example. The other couple of weeks ago, I was with uh, Christy and a grandchild in the car. We were just driving along, and I just happened to mention a particular 
institution, uh, an entity, a business, and a particular act that that institution had taken. Uh, not just rolling along, just speaking. A couple days later, I was going to Google something. So I opened up Google search, and the very first option was that particular entity by name and that particular action by name. In other words, we all, if, us older people don't understand this, but these things aren't just listening to us when we push the record or speak button. It's listening to us all the time. Now think about that for your young folks. You, your young folks, when they talk to their peers, somebody's listening. And it may not be a person, but somebody's going to feed back to them the things that they're talking about. Do you trust that source? It's happening. People, somebody's listening to me right now. Something is listening to me. I could, I could get arrested tomorrow. Who knows? <laughs> In some scenarios. That's where we're at. Do we really prefer our kids to be more connected to the world than, we, than they are to us? With school and activities, unreal, unrealistic expectations, and constant, world, constant worldly input, many end up in a situation where the parents are in one world and the kids are in another. So perhaps some advice is in order, not from me, but from the Father. God had a plan to relationally connect with his wayward children. The author of Hebrews tells us that because we are human of flesh and blood, God became flesh and blood. That's in Hebrews 2. So you might ask, okay, how does that apply to me? Well, the point is that to relate to us, God entered our world as the God-man, Jesus Christ. So perhaps the way to relate to kids is to enter their world. Now, by this, let me quickly say, I'm not saying you should dress like or wear your hair like or talk like a teenager. I don't think that'll get you very, very far, except maybe some rolling of the eyes. Rather, what we're saying is showing interest in, being aware of what's actually going on in their lives. It may involve, frankly, accepting them without conditions. Loving sacrificially, listening to some of the weird things they say, and not becoming critical when their immaturity erupts. Then it means being available whenever they're willing to talk. I shudder to think about some of the unnecessary arguments I had with my kids that created separation. One was about 30 years ago when my uh, teen son decided what I saw was clearly following a fad and uh, he, which was anathema to homeschooling nonconformists. Okay, following a fad was a bad thing. And he did, he, he rolled up his jeans. And I happened to point out to him, you know, you ain't going to be doing that in a year or two. Okay, now remember, Vincent is Greek for stubborn. Okay? All right. So he responded to me, oh, yeah, I'm going to wear my jeans like this for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, of course, Dad was right. The, 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 the trend went out. 
after a while, until about 20 years later when I saw one of his younger brothers rolling up his jeans. Came back in. And then it occurred to me that in the 60s, I did it too. <laughs> the, the point here is that we got to think before we criticize. Uh, we got to look at the bigger picture, that of relationship, and choose our battles wisely. I unnecessarily created a conflict in that situation. And there are so many things that affect the young who have not developed a filter yet. And we as parents have to start somewhere. And that's likely where your young person is, just like Christ did with us. And that is the point of acceptance. Uh, some parents in my generation made the mistake of attaching acceptance to behavior instead of the person. Genuine acceptance loves a person for being God's image bearer. If, if, one's your, if it's your own child, it's a gift of God. Young people, do you understand? You are gifts of God to your parents. And that means that at all stages of life, we must accept them, warts and all. If you're not sure about what I just said, let me ask you this. Would God command you to love your enemies, yet reject your own kids because of their immaturity or their goofy stuff? Just because they lack discernment? There are some examples that Jesus gives us. In John 4, recounts Jesus encountering the woman of Samaria at well, this lady had three strikes against her. First of all, she was a woman, which was looked down upon in that culture. Secondly, she was a Samaritan, half Jew, half something else, despised by the Jews. And worst of all, she was living in sin, strike three. Now, Jesus had no reason, and he didn't encounter her or confront her about that sin and relate to her in that way. Instead, he engaged her in a conversation to the chagrin of his disciples. He didn't condone her sin. He pointed it out to her, but he accepted her as a person, as an image bearer of God. And the result was that she went away to the other Samaritans and talked about a man who knew everything that she'd ever done. And many Samaritans came to believe in him as a result. John 8 records the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, who was dragged before Jesus as a test by the Pharisees. And he could have condemned her behavior and won the favor of the Pharisees, but instead he took the opportunity to convict her accusers. He who has not sinned cast the first stone. The point here is that he did not allow her sin to prevent connection and acceptance. Rather, he accepted her as an image bearer, and provided loving protection from both her accusers, neither do I condemn you, and her sin. Go and sin no more. When the sinful woman of Luke 7 came into the Pharisee's house to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry them with her hair and anoint them with oil, 
He chose not to focus on her sins, but rather he accepted and even praised her because of her repentance and her demonstrated faith. In Matthew 9, Jesus used an analogy to understand this acceptance. Jesus was being criticized for mixing with tax collectors and other sinners. And his response was, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call sinners, I came to call, I came not to, uh, excuse me, I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. The point here that is that Jesus made was that a physician doesn't ask you, why did you do that? Okay, or how did you get sick? He simply helps you get well. As Paul put it, In Romans 15, you are to accept one another as Christ has accepted you. He not only accepted us, he died for us while we were yet sinners. Is this ringing any bells? It should. Because this is exactly what he did for you and me. Jesus has done this with all of us. He's condemned sin, he never condones it, and he calls us out to obedience. However, he never condemns us. He accepts us at our point of failure. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. So what can we as parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters in Christ learn from that example? If we really want to be effective, in faithfully passing on genuine faith, if we really want to see God's best worked out in the lives of these young ones, if we really love them, we will connect relationally and will accept the young where they are at when we know they have less experience and they're just not as far down the road as we are. And we were once in their position. You know, uh, most parents will if they read parenting books or go to parenting conferences, they'll hear the term unconditional acceptance, and they'll all nod, of course, yes, yes, of course. And in practice, we have no problem with that term as long as the kids are playing the game of life by the rules. They're obeying, they're being respectful, they're avoiding trouble and obeying. However, when a young person breaks the rules, maybe yells at the parent, disobeys, deceives, expresses something other than conservative Christian political views, or ends up in juvie court, we tend to to view them differently, perhaps even a little more distant. Maybe we withhold affection. We may not even realize it. It can be very, very subtle. However, that young person can sense it acutely. You know, this is one of the areas in which my parents got it right. Before I went off to college, I may have shared this before, I was in police custody at least three times, and uh, that I can recall. Uh, Was I disciplined? Yes. The first infraction occurred when I was in junior high school uh, on a Friday night out when I shouldn't have been, and uh, the next morning, I was told to walk down to the barbershop and cut off my beetle haircut. Severe punishment. Did I like it? Nope. But I knew my parents loved me despite my screw-ups in the middle of their correction. You know, we don't realize it because 
we're just subtly drawn back into acceptance of behavior rather than acceptance of the person that God created in his image. You know, it's like trying to navigate a narrow passage between two rocky ledges on choppy water. It's kind of like if you're a mythology person, Scylla and Charybdis. We know we shouldn't condemn, but we never wish to condone bad behavior. It sh- but it shows in the way that we respond to them, whether acceptance or rejection or just cool reception. It's a very difficult line to walk, as you parents know. As parents and grandparents, we need to take whatever opportunity we can to express total acceptance without condition <clears throat> as a loved one who has been placed in our home and in our family by a God who does not make mistakes. This is a relationship that lasts for as long as you both shall live on earth, and it may very well affect the life beyond. Now, let's also address young people beyond your family, perhaps from other Christian families, and they may not live up to your expectations or even the standards held by your own kids. You don't have to condone their behavior to accept that young person as an image bearer. I'm going to ask you to uh, put your toes under your chair here as I get a little convicting about some special circumstances. You ever heard somebody say, those kids at school are bad influences on my kid? Yeah, that happens. In junior high, I was exposed to cigarettes, and I smoked for a while. One day, before we got into the school grounds, this bad influence guy showed up on my side. He didn't have a magazine. He had an actual picture of gross immorality, a.k.a. porn. Uh, I learned that it was dangerous to drink beer, especially around older boys who would use my compromised state to pummel my face for fun. In high school, it was only by the grace of God that I did not get caught up in the new craze of marijuana, as many of my peers did, and they definitely had a negative effect on me in other ways. Yet the acceptance of my parents protected me from major destructive, destructive attitudes. Living in a frat house in college exposed me to a whole new world of debauchery. Again, I accepted Christ while I was there, uh, and that kept me from some of the more destructive behavior. Rest assured, those challenges will come. Christian school or homeschool may shield the young from some of those influences, but in today's culture, not all. There are too many variables for us to deal with in this message, but in general, when this kind of bad influence thing comes up, I would encourage parents to always look inward first. If a young teen is attracted to a bad influence, it's likely that he or she is looking for acceptance from others for a reason. All the more reason to start young in developing acceptance, relationship, and trust within the family. Much better to be able to trust your young teen than to be constantly playing the role of family cop to try to catch them, usually failing. Another one, social media presents another difficult issue that, frankly, we didn't have to deal with much in most of our parenting. But for a young person, it opens up and gives an opportunity to express to the whole world one's ignorance and immaturity. 
And we should all be in favor of freedom of expression, yes. But for the Christian, the issue is how can we be faithful and effective? In other words, this is a wisdom issue. Okay? I'm not saying it's sin for you to give your kids a, a smartphone. I'm just saying it's a wisdom issue. Okay? And how you communicate is a wisdom issue uh, with those young people. As a more mature adult, you may feel compelled to correct an, a young person, maybe in another family, online, because uh, you know, they, they've expressed some clearly unbiblical stuff that's just wacky. You might even use Scripture to justify your response. In other words, Proverbs 26.5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes, right? Now, I appreciate so much what Larry taught last week as to social media in dealing with hot issues, especially with fellow believers. Larry discouraged us from engaging in public disagreements with fellow believers, even if you are right biblically. And this follows the concept of Matthew 18, where we, we resolve disputes among believers privately on as low a level as possible. It also follows the, the exhortation that Paul gave in Galatians 6, that if anyone is caught up in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And by the way, the proverb right before that says that we should not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Now, these seemingly contradictory proverbs show us that there are times and ways to answer and to not answer. Again, this is an issue of wisdom and discernment. Communication on social media has certain unique and distinct characteristics. First, they're usually public. Even if it starts out private, it can easily be forwarded and become public. Secondly, like all written communications, they are static. By that I mean when you send something out, you have no idea what that other person's attitude is, what their emotional, emotional state is. You don't know where they're at, really. And they don't know where you're at when you send it. Finally, there is a temptation during these exchanges to shoot back responses quickly without much forethought. Therefore, both sides are essentially shooting in the dark. The faceless back and forth tends to harden people in their positions. Now, if it's public, neither side will want to concede a point well made. Even if it's a private communication, there will be a tendency to take the extreme of the other side, attack those ex extremes, and essentially ensure that there will be no middle ground upon which to agree. Just polarization. So social media is not fertile ground for understanding, and certainly the chances of effectiveness in winning a heart are slim. So, if you see online a young person express something that's clearly way out there, Remember, it's not your job or goal to win an argument. If you're to be involved at all, it is to restore that young person in a spirit of gentleness. Part of being effective is accepting the young person as an image bearer who claims to represent Christ. Instead of shooting back an argument, I suggest that you pray for that young person. And if God leads, and if you can, if you can perhaps you can meet over coffee, have a phone conversation with a young adult or uh, at least give both sides an opportunity to hear one another. Uh, 
you know, older people, we're not always right. And we need to be willing to listen if we hope to be heard. Social media is not an effective way to win hearts or a productive medium to demonstrate acceptance for another person. Now, young people, as I just said, we make mistakes too. And you may feel like we have missed something. But I urge you, do not simply forward what somebody else gave you. Why? Because it shows you're not thinking for yourself. You're just forwarding. Uh, social media blasts may make you feel like you're shocking somebody into reality, but I think what you'll find is the exact opposite happens. Older, pe older people can be guilty of prejudice, and so can you, young people. You'll get a better response to your ideas if you show respect, value, and worth to older people. Remember, we may not look like it, but we too are made in God's image. The reason that we accept one another is because of that very fact that each one of us is uniquely made and we each have value, dignity, and worth. Conditional acceptance places performance above that fact. The more all of us can understand and grasp genuine acceptance, the more intimately we connect and bond with others, especially these young people. And if we're not secure, if they're not secure in those relationships with their parents or their church, it will be much more difficult to encourage them in God's word. In fact, what often happens is they may just disappear and you'll have no way to influence them. I mentioned last month that we as parents in the mid-70s uh, or in later often used Proverbs 22, 6 as a guidepost. Train up your children the way so that they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. Uh, and it was not wrong to do so because it's vital that children be trained. And that's the responsibility of parents, even if some of the training is delegated to others. God holds the parents responsible for the training of children entrusted to those families. The problem with our misinterpretation of the verse, the how of training such child, as we mentioned, as the way he should go really means according to his individual uniqueness as a child. This is the difficult art of parenting. Without some structure, guidelines, and rules, we have chaos in the home. Our sense of justice tells us that we shouldn't favor one child over another, so we kind of just treat them all the same. Yet, as we discussed last month, each person, each child is unique with different tendencies, strengths, weaknesses, sensitivities, and lack thereof. And some of these qualities are natural and inborn, but others are learned. Kids can turn out differently than their much younger siblings merely due to the season of life their parents were going through when they were being reared. Uh, our older kids were in or close to the time that I was in the Marine Corps, and honestly, I do not remember acting like a drill instructor. I honestly don't. Now, when we get together and talk about old times, you'd think that I did, according to them. But I remember a rule that we had, okay? Uh, Christy, at that time, believe it or not, was having our kids eat cereal with milk, okay? And never any Captain Crunch, okay? But we had a rule that if you poured your cereal and you put your milk in and you didn't eat it all, you had to eat it before you could eat your lunch. Okay? Now, 
By the time lunch came around, the kids had a very descriptive term for that bowl, okay? And as it happened, there was young, one younger sister standing at the table looking at her bowl, and there was much weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. One of her older brothers got annoyed and looked back at her and said, sit down, be quiet, and eat your slop. Now, where did he get that? I don't know. I don't know. It is difficult uh, because they can be influenced by so many different things. And with 2020 hindsight, for me, it's that each child is different and we must adjust in how we relate to, exhort, discipline, and comfort each one individually. And I'm still learning. We know that acceptance does not mean that we condone sin, but we must understand that it's a process. When Sean and Tanya take people through uh, Growing Kids God's Way, they will say that one of your goals for very young children is first-time obedience rather than threatening and repeating and threatening and repeating. However, that does not mean you're going to have first-time obedience the very first time. It's a process. It takes some training. Now, if a teen is consistently criticized for misdeeds, he or she will likely feel unaccepted, perhaps insecure, maybe fearful, even rejected if, you don't, if they don't perform as you have wished. If parents can get a start in acceptance, even when the performance is lacking, you may actually see some positive response. It may not be as obedient or as sweet as you would wish, but if there's any genuine effort to do the right thing, however imperfectly, when a parent acknowledges that effort, the teen may feel some acceptance from you, and you may be plowing hardened ground so that there is a chance that a seed may sprout in, in encouraging relationship. I know how difficult this can be. You take a step forward and Satan steps in and causes an argument with some, over some silly thing, and then you feel like you're taking two steps back. Parents in those situations will often have opportunities to demonstrate humility by asking forgiveness after they've expressed some anger or insensitivity. Sometimes it's when the young person has really disappointed that you have the best opportunity. Um, I grew up in a certainly more loving home where affection was, was more common. Christy's parents loved her, we have no doubt, but they were older and less expressive of affection. Her dad was about as unemotional as one can get, definitely not a hugger. Christy gave me permission to share this, that one time when I think she was about in sixth grade, she did something that caused her great embarrassment. She said this was prominent in her hall of shame. She was represented by her mother, sent to her room, and as she sat there, sat there or laid there crying on her bed, her dad came in, sat down beside her, wasn't even me, <laughs> put his arm on her, told her it would be okay, and he gave her one of the few kisses she ever remembers receiving from him. And that reassurance was huge in Christy feeling acceptance. 
The key for teens is to know they're loved and accepted for who they are, not how they perform. Again, this is a very difficult balance to maintain as we often find ourselves correcting disrespect, misbehavior, or blatant sin. But that's the lot of parents. However, in that correction, the young person needs to see that forgiveness is available, that there is redemption to be had. They need to know that you are not perfect. So when you get angry with your spouse or with them, they need to hear genuine repentance and seeking forgiveness. Maybe you tell them stories about the stupid things you did when you were their age and the lessons that you learned. Finally, they need to know that they can make themselves vulnerable, that they can trust you, that they don't have to fear you. That's when they will be better able to see their worth and value in God's eyes. They need to know that you love and accept them even when they mess up and don't do it exactly as you wish. You see, this is a process, but given the goal of passing on genuine faith, it is eternally important. As the worship team comes up, uh, we're going to stand and go over some passages you're well familiar with. Um, and uh, just kind of reinforce what we've been talking about from Scripture. All up. Okay, here we go out of Deuteronomy 6. Fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Then the next one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord.